Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. I'm so excited to share this conversation with Dr. Saida Desolet. We covered many juicy topics, including why pleasure is necessary, not frivolous, why the majority of people have okay and bad sex, and the difference between dry food sex and gourmet sex, how to relate and date from a place of wholeness, why it's important to be your best lover every single day, and ways to cultivate calmness, relaxation, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to today's podcast and today I am super excited to be joined by Dr. Saida Desolet. Welcome. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. So, and on International Women's Day, which just seems like a really magical day (laughs) to be having this conversation. Absolutely. First of all, I'd love you to share with my listeners a little bit about yourself and and all the amazing work that you do. Thank you. Well, I want to start off with, I've been recently labeled in the last few years as a culture counterculture creatrix. I really love that title. Uh, So (laughs) I have a bit of mischievousness. Um, I'm a self-made person, meaning I did a lot of my, I didn't follow any traditional routes, although I do have a PhD and that was fairly traditional, but I got into it in a non-traditional way. Uh, My work really began when I was five years old. Um, I was supposedly born quite ecstatic. By the time I was five, I'd figured out that other little girls needed to know about a certain spot on their body that was so amazing. And I got in a lot of trouble for that. And I remember thinking to myself as I was flying through the air, being thrown out of the house by an older sister, um, thinking, well, she wouldn't be this angry if she knew about this spot. So already at a very young age, I had an understanding of the beauty of pleasure, the necessity of pleasure, the naturalness of pleasure, but also how deeply ingrained we are to be terrified of it and to regard it as something bad. So that started at a very young age. My home, I grew up on a native reservation in Canada, one of the more violent ones. So our home was actually a shelter for abused women. So often this would come in. So of course, then at a very young age, I was already playing psychologist. I was listening to the problems, asking questions, giving reflection from quite young, as far as I, like when I think really far back. And then as a teenager, I was keeping files on all my girlfriends and their relationships. I had to have filing system because it was so complicated. (laughs) So it started there, the, um, the natural desire to help people have better relations, have people feel better about their bodies. And then I had a very intense life-threatening experience where it was violent rape and I was given two weeks to live afterward. Um, and that changed my path forever because I chose life, even though I was told I wasn't going to live. I'm clearly here. And that led me to develop my current method of work, which is now uh, featured in Um, many books probably read by multi-millions of people at this point and I'm definitely training uh, doctors gynecologists and many other professionals in my psychosexual method and so that's kind of like how the work got developed I have a couple books out a TEDx talk and the more important thing is I get to be here today with you and that's what's really important to me is to have real conversations with people and make this as accessible as possible Wow, <laughs> so many routes I want to go off with this conversation. So thank you for this <laughs> whistle-stop tour of your life and, and the yeah. trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so this five-year-old girl, how do you feel that you just you know, knew this at this age? I'd love to hear more about your reflections on that. that you yeah, just... well, 
I think um, one of the things I've come to realize is that Eros, our erotic intelligence, uh, evolves just like our physical body does. Um, we train our mind, we train our you know, spirituality and our sexuality, our Eros is um, something that also matures with time and with experience. And every single person is born erotically innocent. So when you're a child, you do have a sexuality, but it's not at all like an adult sexuality. It's different. It doesn't have the same kind of, I guess, pornographic uh, features. It's much more embodied and uh, sensual. So for me, it was just natural. It felt really good. My parents uh, were made a very clear intent that they would never block that in their children because they grew up in very religious settings. And so they just taught me healthy boundaries. Do it in your own room. Uh, don't let adults touch you. Tell us immediately if this happens, which is did my very first day of school. All the children were molested by the teacher. She went around and basically touched all of our genitals. And I reported it. And the next day we had a new teacher. So I had very clear boundaries, even as a very young child. And I also had the freedom of erotic innocence. And so I feel really grateful for that and grateful for my upbringing because I actually still feel like that erotic innocence is very much intact. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. You use the word eros a lot and something really struck me. One of your recent newsletters, you were talking about the huge, phenomenal global antidepressants market and that you work with a lot of women who feel numb to life. So I'd love for you to share what the word Eros means to you and why it's important at this time. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah, I mean, and those statistics that I sent in that newsletter were for 2019 to 2020. So they are even worse now. Um, so that just so people know, it was more than double uh, the depression rates and the use of antidepressants from the start of COVID. Wow. Uh, so for me, Eros, when I put it in very simple terms, because it's been hijacked to mean, you know, sex and, and the vulgar aspects of sex, almost like the, the erotic almost no longer has beauty attached to it, it has porno, pornography attached to it. But for me, when you, I've done a lot of looking into what Eros actually is as a mythical, what did the Greeks actually mean? And what they meant is aliveness, but it's a kind of aliveness where you feel literally turned on, your cheeks flush, your heart is beating a little more. There's excitation inside the body, but there's also this feeling of love and pleasure. So the way the Greeks have used the word eros, for example, they go to a music concert and, and they're like, I was so full of eros. You know, it's like, it's, it doesn't mean that that person wanted to have sex with everyone in the, in, at the concert. It's just that the music evoked so much turn on and aliveness that they're like, ah, there's no other way to describe it. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, more the definition I like to use. And because I feel that apathy is a global mass pandemic, I would have to say mm -hmm. like apathy is very contagious and it's very, it's lethal, meaning the rise of suicide uh, in the last few years, especially is exceptionally high. The rise of gender-based violence is exceptionally high and the rise of sex trafficking, especially of children has gone off the charts. So all of these things, they create a, a, an apathy, like they shut us down because they're so ugly. And so to bring back Eros is to bring back beauty, but the form of beauty that enlivens, the form of beauty that reopens and softens the body and the mind and the spirit. Mm, and what form do you feel that is? Share, could you share some examples? Yeah, well, it could be uh, simple. Like, um, uh, do you like looking at sunsets, Sarah? Absolutely. Sunrises, sunsets. <laughs> yeah. So the next time you see a sunset, recall kind of a really epic orgasm you've had. And as you're watching the sunset, bring in that memory, take some deep breath and start to really sensualize the experience, meaning be aware of the feelings in your body and maybe some smells, but also keep that memory of that deep pleasure and in that moment, you're eroticizing, in a sense, the sunset, and then allowing, giving your body permission to feel pleasure purely by uh, beauty, which is the gorgeousness of a sunset, but you're really letting it touch you. You're not just going, oh, nice sunset and moving on. You're actually participating 
in a very mysterious act of what I call lovemaking with life in that small moment. And that's really what the deeper uh, invitation into cultivating Eros is for all of us. And it's available to all of us, isn't it? I mean, at the moment, the spring everyone spring's blossoming here and I just get excited walking down the street with the flowers emerging and this yes. eros is such a antidote to everything that's happening in the world right now so yes. beautiful and for people to the, the apathy is so um big for so many people so many people feel so hopeless feel that I've talked to so many people who feel guilty experiencing pleasure when there's so much happening in the world right now that's so challenging what would you say to people when they share that this is a question i get asked all the time because there's this assumption that pleasure is frivolous and so i want to just really set the record straight it's absolutely not frivolous and it's super necessary and and let's look at it simply from the the way our nervous systems are designed to uber simplify the nervous system. Let's just say there's a, a arousal system, the sympathetic, and a relaxation system, the parasympathetic. There's much more going on, but let, for the sake of this, let's leave it. And so we need arousal because if we don't get up off the couch, if we're not motivated to go do things, we won't actually do anything. So arousal is very necessary, but too much arousal, meaning running away from the saber-toothed tiger, 24 seven, because we can't switch off the fight, flight, or freeze um, uh, reaction to stress is actually quite harmful because our systems are not meant to be in, in arousal 24 seven. Then we have the other side, the relaxation side, which for the most part, we're so depleted on that side, the rejuvenation side that we tend to just fall asleep as soon as the nervous system goes into relaxation. So what's essential about pleasure is that it uh, it shifts us from hyperarousal vigilance into rejuvenation, relaxation. Yet it has a bit of both because we're aroused and we're relaxed. So I call that the state of relaxed arousal. It's very healthy for the human being to understand instead of either or stress or sleepness that we can modulate on our own using breath, using awareness, using sensuality to modulate into what's called relaxed arousal. And that is a state of optimal living. So you, you still have access to the parts of your brain that you need to be creative and innovative, but you also have access to the, the healthy hormones that, that are necessary uh, for optimal functioning, which at this time, I think, let's say that we have entrained ourselves to be addicted to the stress hormones and we do not understand and have very little tolerance for the pleasure hormones. And I love what you shared then that we're so depleted on that rest side of our nervous system. So for women that are listening, what are some steps that you would suggest for them to cultivate their being and their presence in that side of their nervous system? The first thing is just to realize that you have choice, no matter what's going on, we have choice, even if it's really, this is the thing, you will be far more effective as a member of society, community, family, when you can self-regulate and self-modulate and self-induce states of calmness, gentleness, relaxation, when you can actually intentionally modulate back into that relaxation state, even and especially uh, when there's distress around you. Why? Because we are limbic creatures. That means your nervous system and mind, they're open and they communicate. So when you're super stressed, it, it kind of informs me and I get super stressed, right? That's a very basic mammalian thing. We actually even see it between mammals and reptiles. If you're really stressed around a snake, it will get really stressed. If you're really calm, it stays calm. So there's this uh, nonverbal communication. <clears throat> so by uh, understanding how to do that, and it's first knowing you have the choice. Secondly, then what are the activities that allow you to do that? The most, um, I'd say accessible, even right now would be your breath. So one of the ways to help tone, tone the system is to engage the vagus nerve. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to make an O shape with your mouth and just breathe out very slowly and make kind of that funny sound. Um, 
And you do that enough, it lowers the heart rate, it downregulates the system, and you're in training your body. So that's very empowering. You can teach it to kids, you can teach it to elders. I mean, it's amazing. Mm. The second part would be to pay attention to self-soothing because we're so distressed, we don't recognize that we're a little bit freaked out. So by touching our bodies and squeezing our limbs and assuring ourselves that we're actually safe in this moment is a very simple skill that we can do to help uh, regulate any kind of triggers or even the possibility of trauma if we're witnessing something, for example. And then the others are a little more pleasurable. It's like paying attention to your sensuality. Um, perhaps get off the screens a little earlier, shut off the news, um, dim the lights, run a bath because the water and dimmer lights is very soothing to the adrenals. So you want to be able to understand that. Uh, so those are simple things. There's a lot more to do, but those are the simple things. Choice, breath, and then paying attention to your environment and regulating as best as you can. Mm, that's beautiful. And those simple things are often the most wonderful <laughs> to get started. And just yes. that idea of spending more time in that relaxation to fill up that pot <laughs> just yes. is just even that alone can be quite mind-blowing for some people to hear that that's even possible because the yes. stress factor can be just I just need to get busier and just get all these things done and so yes. just giving space for that is so beautiful so thank you for that yes. um so there's so much I want to ask you and I'd love to hear around your psychosexual method because it's I'd love for you to share what that is and okay. I'm sure I'll have a million questions from that. <laughs> yes. So psychosexuality as an idea, I think, began with Freud. Um, but I didn't, wasn't really aware of his idea of it uh, in the beginning when I was exploring. I was having a direct experience myself post-rape recovery and just kind of reclaiming my life. How there was this direct connection between my thoughts and feelings and what was happening in my body in terms of levels of pain and uh, function. Uh, as I progressed to developing my method, then I started to do a little bit more research and realized, no, there is such a thing as this interconnectedness, but it hasn't been that studied in terms of uh, connectedness specifically with the genitals. So it's more connected around beliefs. Like if you believe you need to look a certain way to be attractive, you're going to probably shut down just thinking perhaps you're not attractive enough. And so then when you have a sexual experience, you're more concerned about how you look than actually having and enjoying the experience. Now that would be an example of that. Another on the reverse is when say there's physical pain, say in the vulva uh, during a, a sexual experience, and then meaning is attached to that. I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm broken, etc. So that's kind of, it's a both and, either psychology in and down or physicality up. Um, and then in, in terms of my work, what I started to realize is there's some simple uh, premises that are actually life-changing, especially if women have had, say, trauma or difficulty in this arena. One of them I already said, um, and the premise is I'm not broken, so I don't need to be fixed. Now, when it comes to female empowerment and female medicine, almost everyone believes that a woman needs to be fixed. So when you have a belief like that, what do you think you spend all your attention on? The fixing. But what if you didn't need to fix? What if there was nothing broken? What if instead it's a journey into self-discovery? It's a journey into realizing, actually, I've never treated my genitals with deep respect. Actually, I've never slowed down to listen. And then you have a kind of a new lovership with yourself. And that starts to change just with one premise. And I have 12 functional premises that I teach in my more professional uh, groups, but you'll hear it a lot in the public speaking that I do. Mm. And do you teach this method to women? I, I teach it, well, it's imbued in all my work. So anyone who engages in my work, it's all infused with psychosexuality. And then yes, uh, to, I teach it to professionals. I wouldn't even be close to teaching it to male professionals who deal with women or actually deal with anyone because psychosexually be belongs to everybody. It doesn't matter how a person identifies. If you're a human being, you have a psychosexual nature. 
And it's, it's incredibly um, entrained from a young age, usually with ideas that aren't serving the adults. And, and what you shared there, that this idea of the massive shift that happens when someone views themselves as whole and not broken, mm-hmm. and how that's so all pervasive in our culture. So that's yes. fabulous to hear. And so you're taking this out to professionals now. Yes. So imagine being a doctor, which I know one, she's one of the luminary gynecologists in the US, shifted how she approached her her pelvic exams and her surgeries. And she would literally say, look, you're not broken. So we're not going to try and fix you, but we're going to work together to give you optimal sexual function and pleasure. Now, imagine being told that instead of, well, this is horrible. You're never going to feel again. Too bad that your vagina is overstretched from this birth deal with it. Many sex therapists to this day, Sarah, are telling individuals, you got pain in sex, I just use more lube. I mean, it's so insensitive. So many women have intense pain through penetrative sex. So if that's the case, we have to look at what's going on. A lot of that pain is because of tension. And a lot of that tension is both lifestyle and their psyche. So if we can start addressing those things and having better conversations, for me, it's really about the individual empowering herself and feeling like, wow, you know, I have the ability to heal myself, to open myself, to access my full pleasure potential. And that's literally been my life's work for over uh, two and a half decades now. Mm, wow. I got tingles when you shared that the conversation that doctors having with their patients that this is we're in this together and what can we do I mean how many women are going round and round the medical system trying to get answers to something or have given up totally and just accepted that this is their lot so getting that message out there that's a whole nother way I mean just yeah I just uh, full prayers for your mission that you (laughs) can share this and spread this around the world because it's just so vital so it's I mean it sounds silly but I do think women need to be trained like what to expect in a pelvic exam what to ask for and if those factors are not available leave why because a large amount of sexual trauma isn't happening through sex or intercourse it's happening through pelvic exams and it's a very simple thing that that professionals can adapt so that it doesn't happen that way unfortunately they're not trained in psychosexuality so that's why i'm such an advocate but it has to be both yes i'm training people but yes also it's good to inform the individual woman so she is walking into a situation with her body better informed, feeling more empowered and being able to ask the right questions and make good decisions and to feel empowered enough to walk out and going this, no, if you're not willing to meet my criteria, I'm going to find another doctor because that also puts pressure on the medical system to do better. Yeah. And is there a couple of things that you could share that a woman might do differently going into a pelvic exam? Yes. So one of the things might be that you want things to go slowly. You may also, for me, it's very important. And almost all of my students also ask for this, but I've always told my uh, doctor, please ask permission before you're about to enter my body. Let me know and let me answer you. And if they're not willing to do that, they're like, what? I'm like, okay, well, we're not going to be doing this. If they refer to my genitals as down there, I'm not happy about this. You're my doctor. You should be comfortable enough to refer to the vulva, the anatomical structures, and make me feel comfortable with what you're doing uh, in that moment. So I've also educated doctors. Like it's actually called a vulva. And I wouldn't mind if you would refer to my vulva as a vulva and not down there. And so I have kind of these conversations. You can see they get a little uncomfortable at times, but they tend to adapt fairly quickly. I've never had to walk out, but I have had students walk out on theirs because the doctor was just so belittling. Um, Yeah, they just walked out. So if also a pelvic exam isn't feeling nice, you can say, can you slow down? Can you stop? Can you tell me what you're doing? Okay, right now I'm feeling your left ovary. Thank you. I'm feeling your right ovary. Thank you. So so that you're um, learning as well. Um, That's uh, there are many other things, but that's sort of the basics is to feel empowered but really like you don't have to go through with anything or even stop halfway if it's not feeling right 
Yeah, absolutely. And just that permission to, yeah. to stop, to say no, to slow down. Um, all of those things is just profound. And even to sometimes, you know, I've suggested with women that do, to put the speculum in yourself if it mm-hmm. feels, that feels an empowering thing to do. Oh, and the other uh, secret, because the gynecologist says this to me, she only ever uses children size speculums for wow. even adult women because it's a lot less painful. And she said, there's no need for the big adult ones. Like she can see just as well. So if you're having vaginal pain, vaginal tightness or any kind of thing like that, you can make a specific request that they use a child speculum versus an adult. Thank you. That's such a brilliant suggestion. So thank you so much for those. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, you work with, uh, well, you're, you're pretty much the lead in the world around is the jade egg. <laughs> and I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because there's been a lot of controversy over yes. the jade egg and, and is it effective? Is it safe? All of these things. And yes. so many women are also curious to explore it. So I'd love you to speak to that. Okay, great. Uh, this is a, that's a big question. So I don't know how much we will cover, but uh, so let's first say that I tend to agree with a lot of the controversies. And the reason I tend to agree is there is now a snake oil industry around the jade egg. Um, so let's historically look back. You can trace in almost any culture, a female practice that involved inserting something in the vagina different lineages use different shaped items. And this was, um, you have to understand, it's about fertility, not so much about sexual pleasure, although pleasure was always related to better fertility. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so these are practices developed by ancient peoples to make ensure better fertility, because in those days, fertility was like a very big thing. There were fertility rituals and rites and things to observe. Uh, so it made sense that they somehow had a female practice for fertility. Then scoop forward uh, to now, um, a lot of these teachings, say in the Taoist teachings, they were not public knowledge. They were knowledge to only a certain amount of nuns who were training very intensely. And the idea wasn't to be a sex goddess. The idea was to uh, be able to harness desire and harness the ovarian energy, the energy produced by the ovaries as a means to rejuvenate themselves, to give themselves more energy and for longevity. So a lot of the intention with these old practices was longevity and spiritual awakening, but not being a sex goddess. Okay. So we also have to contextualize that and why it wasn't offered publicly is there was knowledge that the public wouldn't really understand the proper use of the practice and therefore should not be taught unless they're, they're really well guided. Then this came out with several different teachers who brought this out. Um, I think back in the seventies, eighties is when it first started to really come to the West. And in the first few books were written all by men. And um, the main female practice book that I was made aware of or in the early nineties had written, had been written by eight men. And so um, it wasn't even conducive to the female body. They basically translated the male practice for women and assumed certain things. Um, so I, that's a problematic because that information is still out in the public and still being practiced. Wow. And it's actually not great for the female body. So when I kind of came into the game, you have to understand I'd been a dancer most of my life. I'd had my erotic innocence intact. I had a very healthy sexuality. I was a body worker. I was a martial artist. I was a belly dancer. So I was very uh, aware of my body and I had an urgency to heal because I was dying from uh, a bad experience. All of those factors allowed me to confront what was offered to me as information and go, this is not working for my female body, but I know there's something inherently good in this. And then started to work with my own body and developing a very feminine, uh, way of doing the practice, which later was brought into that system by, by the founder of that system. Uh, But unfortunately I wasn't teaching teachers. And so now there are many teachers who are qualified in my actual work that I never taught um, and they're doing it improperly. So I do agree again with a lot of the problems that are out there around jade egg, because here's the deal. We are psychosexual beings. 
if your instructor has no training whatsoever in that, you're not going to be held in a good place because a lot comes up when we start to stir this part of our body. So we have to have a really good container. Two, a lot of the practices themselves are not great for uh, women's bodies because as I said, they were originally designed for a male body. Translated into female body causes more pelvic tension and more issues. So I, again, um, that I don't, I do agree with some of the controversy that it's not great. However, where I say the controversy is incorrect is with proper practice, with a psychosexual awareness, and with a very particular way of allowing a woman to attune to herself and defining for herself what pleasure means and what sexuality is, etc. Then I've had very high success rates. And I'm talking, uh, it doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter the amount of stress and trauma that has already pre-occurred. Um, almost all of my students have had strong transformation. And for me, it's a lifetime transformation. It's not just a momentary, oh, that felt nice. It's literally, oh, I have a skill set that will allow me to be a healthy, integrated sexual being for the rest of my life. Mm, thank you. And so when looking out for a JDEG teacher, that psychosexual background is so important. And like you say, that holding. So thank yes. you for bringing that. And so that skill set, you talk a lot about, uh, I love that's a lot of the language that you use in your work. And you talk a lot about gourmet sex and yes. gourmet relationships. And I was watching one of your Instagrams and I loved that you use the word drive-through sex compared yes. to gourmet sex and I had a, ch <laughs> a chuckle at that because I thought what a brilliant description that so you can just instantly relate to yes exactly. <laughs> hey you know drive-through sometimes is cool because you've been starving for a long time and you just need to have Absolutely. something but after the first bite usually you're like, oh, what am I doing? I should have just kept fasting. So uh, for some people, they don't mind a little drive-through here and there. It's not harmful for other people. It's, it's initially exciting and then very dissatisfying. And for others, it's not even something they would uh, consider for themselves. In reference to drive-through, what I mean by that is a transactional sexual experience. Two adults wanting to have consensual sex. Maybe you meet through an app, maybe at a party and you, you do the thing. And there may be some level of satisfaction, but for the most part, I think the dissatisfaction comes from the lack of cultivating eros. And by eros, I mean sexual tension, sexual beauty, offerings of beauty that arouse those kinds of things. We're kind of not very skilled in that in our society. We haven't paid a lot of attention to it. And when you look at porn or you look at movies or you look at any kind of social media, it's not really existence. It's just like, hey, I've got a, a, a nice ass and um, you got nice this, whatever, let's get together. You know, there's really not a lot in the collective around honoring each other's hearts, honoring each other's, the deeper essence of each person. Even if it's a one night stand, I don't care. Can you choose to evoke a profound experience even in that? Um, and that's within all our choice making. And it's within a skill set of building our ability to handle and generate more erotic tension between ourselves and life and others. So that's a little bit what I wanted to say around drive through sex. It's very predominant. And by a few different ways of shifting our attention and some skills, we can actually then have more profound sexual experiences, more satisfying sexual experiences, no matter what it is again if it's a party experience or you know you've been married for 20 something years um, that cultivation of eros is really crucial for beauty and satisfaction mm, delicious and what sort of skills do you feel it's important to cultivate to mm -hmm. transform something from more of a transaction to that profound delicious beautiful connection yeah so we were talking about gourmet yeah. and and so the, the idea here is imagine that most of us enter relating to each other as a beggar. You need to turn me on. You need to satisfy me. You need to do this and this and this. There's a sort of like, I, I want to have this experience and you're the one that's going to give it to me. And so that's the beggar. Mm. The gourmet plate is when you have a solo 
cultivation practice where you actually are your own best lover and you take the time to really get to know yourself and you start to actually enjoy that relationship and it becomes abundant. So you do that in whatever, there are many ways to do that. But now you have a gourmet plate, you're no longer bargaining for sex for the relationship. You're not going to say, okay, I'll take your pizza piece and you can have my, you know, whatever piece. Um, you're just like, here's my gourmet plate. It's abundantly available. I'm not going to be bargaining. This is what I have to offer. Take it or leave it kind of thing. And if you don't desire it, it's okay because I'm really enjoying myself. <laughs> so it's a kind of an attitudinal shift um, that is quite important uh, in the collective. Because right now we're, we're sort of at this place where we um, still have this idea that there's a better half out there, that there's, you know, this completion of one another. And like, I do not want that. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I'm not interested in finding my other half. I, I want to be whole and meet another whole person and have the relationship be an, uh, an exalted expression of two whole beings choosing to dance together versus two incomplete beings grasping at one another, trying to fill their own beggar's bowl, and then leading to a lot of problems, which is the predominant relational style that I see and coach for. Mm, absolutely. And it's, you know, few of us have had good role models when it comes to this from our families of origin or carers. And, exactly. And it feels though as we're in an exciting time where we're redefining what's possible for relating and relationships. And I totally hear what you're sharing, you know, that you go out as a whole being. It's a very different way of going out dating because a lot of, you know, like you work with a lot of women and they feel there's no one out there for them or they become soul destroyed with it. And there can all be these messages. I'd love to hear you speak to that. Oh, <laughs> I could just talk so much. I might have to come back. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so first of all, I have to say I have immense compassion, immense compassion for the state of how things are right now for people. This pandemic has not helped. Okay. Like meeting people through apps in online ways is unnatural. And the reason I say it's unnatural is that the, the whole instinctual and intuitive and sensual part of who we are is not engaged. So that gets engaged when, say, you're walking through a park and suddenly you get this feeling in your body and you look over and you see this individual, you're like, wow, what's this feeling? And then they kind of give you a smile and you have another rush of feeling. These are all the non-linguistic ways in which we communicate uh, attraction and erotic energy. It's completely missing. So when you're chatting or texting with someone, even though it could feel kind of sexy, you don't know what they smell like. You have no idea what they really look like because many people don't put genuine information out there. And then they're trying to somehow get something from you, which is usually free sex instead of actually paying a sex worker. So there's a lot of these issues. So if you're looking for love, I can't say that that's very easy. Now, a few people I know have found love through apps. So, you know, that does exist, but the numbers are quite low. So I have a lot of compassion for that. So the first step I would say, no matter what, whether you're on apps or meeting organically, is first to have a profound lovership with yourself. Because you are the one person who will never abandon you, who will be with you for the rest of your life until your last breath. And you are the person who is evolution. You can sense your own evolution in your body. So that's amazing because it's direct information. By having this beautiful relationship with yourself and choosing no longer to bargain for love and sex, you're in a very different position when you meet someone. If you love and cultivate erotic tension, perhaps you just enjoy like smiling at that stranger and feeling a turn on and not doing a thing about it, but just enlivening yourself and off you go. I think adults, we need to learn to do that more where it's not at the first sign of some kind of erotic, uh, you know, blip on the map that we instantly want to relieve the tension of that and make something of it. And we jump very fast from a small erotic kind of blip on the map to this is going to be my forever partner. I mean, uh, no, it, it's not quite like that. So I think that we can 
slow things down, have more integrity, have better erotic experiences that we don't have, like I call it the shame hangover the next day uh, with when we spend more time really truly becoming our own best lover. And then from that very abundant self-confident place, um, being out in the world and you will attract different kinds of people. You will attract people who appreciate that. And if they don't, bye-bye, <laughs> right? And I think it's very important because transactional or, or drive-through sexuality is the norm and it's very unsatisfying. And I think in the long run, probably does some kind of harm because I think we start to get apathetic. We start to numb out and then we just accept, well, I don't want to be alone. So I'm just going to take the next thing that comes. And then it's kind of a nightmare, but you stay in it because you'd rather have the nightmare than be alone. Yeah. And gourmet sex, like gourmet food takes time. It, it just it does. doesn't happen like a drive through. Um, so, but if you're having it with yourself every day, I mean, I really believe in having epic sex with yourself every day. This is one of my, um, you know, orgasm a day keeps the doctor away yeah. kind of thing, but have great sex with yourself every day, even if you're in a long-term relationship so that the pressure in the coming together with another for a sexual experience isn't I need to get off. It's, ooh, what can we discover? What can we explore? What's arising in the mystery of these, the two of us or three of us or however many of us are coming together to explore? Yeah, and, and I think it's really important what you shared around that we're just so used to chasing as soon as that erotic energy comes in that we don't know how to just be with it and to be in the presence of it and to yes. flow with the direction of it as opposed to leaping on it and that's an art form in itself to practice isn't it in terms of absolutely self-pleasure self and yes. that's the best place to practice it and that actually Sarah I have a course called the sacred courtesan where I wanted to bring that archetype back for women to understand that uh, the courtesan uses beauty and magnetism but in, in what I added the word sacred in a conscious way to create more beauty in her world, to have abundance and gourmet in her world. And that's why the Jadic practice, that solo cultivation practice for me, in the way at least that I do it and teach it, is such a profound uh, liberator because we're not, as I said, beggars looking for like that little scraps that get handed out but literally start to be more selective and actually more satisfied with uh, being okay with being on our own as well, or being okay being in a relationship and our partner not being interested um, because that also happens at times. I mean, there's other dynamics there, but really truly it's on every one of us to cultivate and access and celebrate and enjoy this immense erotic intelligence that we have uh, within our bodies. Mm, and I take away a new word today, which is lovership. <laughs> which yes. I adore that word. So um, yeah, we'll all be having loverships. <laughs> yes, why not? Absolutely. I mean, just that again sends tingles in my body. Just, just that. Yeah, it's just it. Just what I love. One of the things I love about your work is the way that you articulate these things. Just lands in my system. And I just feel it. It's just like, wow, that's a whole new, no, another depth of relating that I can explore with myself. Just something clicks. So yeah, thank beautiful. you for, for your curiosity and your, uh, uh, um, your way of speaking these things into the world because we're at such a crucial time, not just in humanity, but just going back to the, just where we are sexually and the evolution of sex and what's possible, what's possible with relating that we need a new language so that we're not just about going to the doctors to, have the pain reduced a bit, but about how mm -hmm. do we actually just deeply connect with this incredible part of ourselves and, yes. and live it in its fullness. So thank you. What I want to make sure that we don't inadvertently do here is shame anyone who's listening. So um, that has not ever been my intention. Sometimes in the sharing of what's possible, it can trigger shame, like, oh, I don't know that, or I can't do that, or I don't understand that, or I don't, you know, da, da, da. So I just want to say to everyone, wherever you are is where you are. And in your own erotic evolution, you might be at a place where I call it the erotic exploration phase. It's the third level of erotic um, maturation process. 
And in that phase, you're allowed to make a lot of quote unquote mistakes, but I don't really believe in mistakes, but you know, you're, you're exploring, you're learning, you're growing. Some of you might be in erotic expansion where you're like, there's got to be more to sex than this. And, and really looking for the more nuanced or refined or deeper uh, expressions of sexuality. And, you know, the last bit is erotic wisdom where we self-validate and self-generate and we uh, experience erotic innocence, but now from the eyes of an adult. So I just wanted to say that so that wherever you are as the listener listening right now, just love on yourself and get curious about where you are and just know that every one of us is at a different phase and there's no right place to be except being with who we are in this particular moment. Yeah, thank you for bringing that in. I appreciate that. And I'd love to ask you about desire because you have written a fabulous book around desire. So to share what desire means to you and yeah, your take on it, because it's a word that's thrown around a lot. (laughs) Well, when I, I, I don't know if you've ever written a book, but uh, the feeling is that it wants to be written long before it gets written. And at least for me, that's how it works in my system. There's sort of this thing that hovers around me and I'm like, oh no, I never ever thought I would be an author, by the way, even though I've written um, quite a few things. However, I think books are great because they can introduce someone to new ideas. And so with, when it comes to desire, we have the books on the research side of desire. So all the research-based desire stuff, that's not what this book was about. And then we have all the kind of more, like I said earlier, pornographic side of desire. And then we also have then the third, which is the suffering aspect of desire. And when I was looking at all of these things, it didn't sit well with me. I'm like, there's, there's, that's not how I experience it. So my idea of desire is that it in itself is a force of nature. It is the thing necessary to create from nothing into something. Nothing requires a spark to then become something. In all of the universe, this is just how it is. And to me, desire is that spark. It's the thing where you're sitting around and you get the sensation. Maybe it's a yearning, an ache, a calling of like, oh, I would love to be in love or oh, I would love to to be a a parent or, oh, I would love to contribute to the world, this thing, or, oh, I would love to know the divine so deeply. Like there's many strong callings that are very natural to human beings. And sex desire is only one of the six that I identified. So it's a motivational force. It's an evolutionary force and it's emerging. Meaning as you evolve, as you grow, your desire evolves and grows and emerges. And you're only really allowed to understand it from the position you're currently in. So what you desire now will be very different if you think back a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, et cetera. And what you will desire in the future will also be very different than now. So there's this, it's almost like the visceral voice of your own essence calling you towards your best life. Now, desires do get hijacked, but we're not going to really you know, address that right now. But just to know that the thing that you ache and yearn for is viable, is essential, and it's worth your attention. So really like, take a moment to sit with a hand on your heart and breathe and admit to yourself, if not anyone else, and do it silently in your heart. Yeah, I would really love to be deeply met in love. And it's a scary thing to admit a true desire. It's very venerable because that true desire is part of our evolutionary path. We are not there yet. We have to become who we really are in order for that desire to manifest. And so that's a journey that a lot of us are afraid of. We kind of just want to be able to buy the thing that we want to get it very quickly. And now we have it and not do any work and not change anything. (laughs) But that's not how uh, human lives work. (laughs) thank you would you say a little bit about hijacked desires because that distinction between authentic and and, and hijacked desire is really important yeah so a hijacked desire would be when that original let's say uh love right so the original desire to be deeply met in love gets hijacked by your family values around love and relationship so you almost get entrained to desire what you desire. 
you learn it from your family, from your friends, from your community, from your culture. So is it true that you want those things? So an example I often use is I had, I don't know if any of the listeners here do this, but I used to have a list of what I wanted in a relationship and specifically in a partner. And one day I met someone who fit my list perfectly. Every box was ticked and remarkably asked me to marry him very quickly. We barely knew each other. That forever love lasted 30 days. And then that marriage was annulled. So what happened there? I married my hijacked desires. He was everything on that list. But if someone had slowed me down and said, Saida, what is it that you truly deeply desire? And if I had really thought about it, it would have been, I want to be profoundly met in love. Then I would have never said yes to that marriage because it wasn't there. I would, the, the hijackness kind of blurs your vision and you think this is perfect. They, they drive this car, they have this income, they look this way, they live over here, they say the right things, they smell the right way. But it's still a list that was compiled by the mandates, ideals, et cetera, of the environment that I grew up in. So that's how those things happen. And it happens all the time, it happens with sexuality. It happens with even the desire to have a family. There's this, for some people, they feel pressured. Like you must do that by the time you're a certain age or it's over. Um, same with contribution. Maybe you chose a career that you chose because it was going to make you more money, but you're miserable instead of really going for the, your true genius and expressing that into the world. So there's a lot of ways in which true desires get hijacked, but luckily we can also um, recognize that hijacked desire and contemplate and really ask ourselves, well, what is it that I deeply, truly want? And how do I know that that is actually what I want and not what everybody else wants me to want? Mm, yeah, thank you. And just that act of just putting your hands on your heart and feeling those desires, yes. um, just such a beautiful, simple thing to do. So thank you. And, and scary, I'm, simple, yeah. but scary. <laughs> And very because, vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. for me, when I've done that, it's like, well, can I do this? Am I going to fail at it? Will it work? Am I, you know, am yeah. I da, 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 da. and so to actually fully own those desires is, is a, a huge step. So I really recommend your book. It's like poetry. It's such a beautiful uh, book to, to read. Um, and I'd also love the one thing that also is because I'm conscious of time and I'd love to, so much I'd love to, to, to dive in with mm. desire, but conscious of time. And so I'd love to hear before we finish, is there anything else you'd like to share that's come out of our conversation? And also maybe one or two things that are really important to you in terms of practices that you do. You may have already mentioned them, but I always love to hear simple things that you might do every day that listeners can take away. Well, if we choose to have eras be important, meaning I want to live my most alive life that I can. I no longer want to be numb. I no longer buy into apathy. I no longer buy into this idea that pleasure is frivolous. I understand that it's uh, not only necess necessary, it's essential for optimal living. And the best way for me to start cultivating pleasure is through my sensuality. That's where it first begins. Now, many women have been told that their sensuality is dangerous, that it will, if they activate it, they're putting themselves in danger. So that is, unfortunately, the desire of, say, parents to protect a girl child. However, when we shut down our sensuality, sensuality is how we make sense of reality. That's what sensuality is. It's just how we make sense of yeah, all the information coming through the senses and we're making sense of that information. That's sensuality. So if we shut it down, what we're essentially doing is actually cutting ourselves off from useful information of our environment. So it actually makes us less safe. Mm -hmm. So to be more safe, we actually need to be more sensual so that we're more connected with the world around us and receiving those signals. Now then, so that's one thing. So properly contextualizing sensual practice. And then the next level would be then to start adding the pleasure component. 
So pay attention. What delights your eyes? What delights your mouth, your nose, your ears, your skin? And start to bring more of that into the most ordinary moments. Maybe you're wearing something and the feel of that uh, material on your skin is delicious. And every once in a while, you just like, ooh, that's just so nice. And you take a breath and you let yourself have a little moment of pleasure. Or maybe your favorite hot drink that you adore, like you smelling it and really tasting it, but let it actually permeate your whole body, your heart, just for that little moment. Take, indulge in creating or modulating that nervous system into that pleasure place. The more we can self-activate those pleasure hormones through very simple acts of engaging our senses, our sensuality, um, then this will eventually translate as well into sex and in the bedroom and relating. But I think if we can just do it in ordinary moments, delight more, we'll also feel more satisfied with the life we're living because we're not waiting for one big thing in order to be happy. We're um, allowing ourselves to experience the joy and the beauty that is actually available, even in very difficult moments. So having a look around, you know, I go to nature a lot. This is important to me because sometimes I've been in so much pain and I go for a walk and I just insist that I stop and I look at every flower and I smell them and I touch them. I press their petals onto my face and I engage almost like a lover would with the beauty of the flowers. And slowly, slowly, the pain that I'm in, it, it doesn't necessarily go away, but it has less of my attention. Where your attention is, is another practice. So just like I capture my attention and I give myself nourishment, vitamin B as in vitamin beauty and <laughs> allow my nervous system again to just take it in and to be soothed and to be replenished through the ordinary. Mm, thank you. That's so beautiful. And the research around happiness, it shows that, you know, it's, it's people that are happy are people that are able to cultivate those moments in every day, not because those big, we look to those big transitions, those big experiences, the big holiday, the wedding or whatever that is. And then yes. research shows we go back to how happy were, we were or not before that experience. And that act of just cultivating the beauty in the ordinary. I love that vitamin B. Yes. <laughs> I'm off my vitamin B fix in a minute. <laughs> um, so this is a Sexy Life podcast. And so I'd love you to finish with what does living a sexy life mean to you? And I know you've covered a lot oh. of that in what you shared, but I always love to ask this question to finish. <laughs> well, it would, it would mean being not only a yes to my eros but a putting it on the altar of something precious for me and having a conscious uh, relationship of honoring the, the the facets of me that are also pleasure-based that are also um love that feeling of erotic aliveness that that go out of my way even if no one's going to see me going out of my way to please myself and uh, titillate myself and, and then sharing that without an agenda with other people. So for example, my girlfriends and I will jump on a WhatsApp video call and do a little booty twerking dance randomly <laughs> once a day. And it's just for pleasure and for fun. And then we both go back to work or whatever we're doing. Um, so having a sexy life really is about creating more of that turn on that joy and that pleasure and of course, I also believe in daily self-pleasuring because I think that that's, um, it just really helps all the brain chemistry, all the hormones, and just helps to relax us. Uh, so if you don't have a self-pleasure practice, I definitely uh, encourage moving in that direction. Mm, thank you. Fantastic. And where can people find you online? Yeah, so Dare Your Desire is my website, dareyourdesire.com. I'm um, also on social media. I don't know. I guess you're putting my details because my name is kind of weird, but just at Dr. Sayida Desilet for Instagram and also Facebook. Okay. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, that's the easiest way. I'm on YouTube as well, but uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you've got <laughs> same <some> name. <laughs> great collection of videos. We'll put all your links in the show notes. And um, 
Thank you so much. There is so much juicy deliciousness in this conversation and I really appreciate you and your work and thank you for making time today. Yeah, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. And for the listener, I just really honored that you took the time because you could be doing anything else to spend some time with us. And I hope that you're inspired to cultivate just a little more eros in your life. Mm, absolutely. Well, I am certainly. I'm sure there'll be many who'll benefit from this as well. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sararosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. Wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.